Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's podcast is the five APIs of the apocalypse with Jeremy Bodenhammer. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. So a few weeks ago, I was on LinkedIn as usual, and I saw my friend Charlie Dahoney had posted that, hey, guys, you got to read this book. It's called Adapt or Die. And so I went online. I'm seeing there's not a whole bunch of books written about logistics lately. So, well, they probably are, but none of my contacts are doing it. So I went on Amazon and downloaded it. Anyway, I thought, you know what? I should reach out to this guy. So that is Jeremy. <laughs> so Jeremy, tell us a little bit about you, what your company and where you live. And tell us about your book too. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Shiphawk. And I live in Santa Barbara, California. I wrote Adapt or Die because I saw the threat that the five APIs of the apocalypse that we're going to talk about today, these giant companies pose to the independent business owners. And I'm a firm believer that small and mid-sized companies feed families and build communities and that these companies needed the tools in order to compete. And so I wrote Adapt or Die to hopefully share some of that information. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And what'd you study? And then how did you give us some career highlights before you started Shiphawk? Sure. I'm a sixth generation from Southern California, believe it or not. My family moved to Portland, Oregon, and I went to high school up there. I started my first company when I was 12 and kind of just hustled and put myself through school. I had worked multiple jobs, but one of the places was at this little executive services firm in uh, Santa Barbara here. And I did little FedEx and UPS type shipping, helped the owner grow that business. And then I had left, gotten married, and I saw this little pack and ship store, think like UPS store or mailboxes, etc., come up for sale. And I ended up buying it. The business was failing. And so I couldn't quit my job. I was putting my wife through grad school, trying to make ends meet there. But the day she graduated, I went to work in the store and ended up growing it to be one of the top performing stores of its kind in the U.S., And learned some very valuable lessons about shipping. Fun story. My first day in the store, a guy walked in with a life-size wooden rocking horse. This thing was big enough for two grown men to sit on. (laughs) It was 2008, the depths of the Great Recession. He had lost his house, selling all his stuff on eBay. And he had sold this horse and asked me if I'd ship it. And I, of course, said yes. And I didn't know what freight was. I didn't know what freight brokers were. And I had learned the hard way. Called UPS, the first agent who got on the phone, laughed at me when I told her how big this thing was. Ended up getting connected with UPS Freight and got her to give me, I think at the time, it was like a 68% discount on a tariff from 1994 to be able to ship this. And all this didn't make sense, right? No, it still doesn't make sense. Anytime somebody says discount from this rate base, I always say, you're talking gibberish. That's that's, that's silly talk. And I'm an LTL guy. I'd still say it's gibberish talk. Exactly. So anyway, that shipment turned into another and another and another. And by 2011, my phone was ringing off the hook with customers asking me to help them with their shipping and more importantly, asking me the same question, which is what does the shipping cost? And that is where I kind of saw the opportunity and sold that business to start Shiphawk. Nice. So who do you serve with Shiphawk? With Shiphawk, we serve 
e-commerce retailers, manufacturers, and distributors. Shiphawk, we say, is the premier packing and shipping software for ERP-connected companies. ERP is for Enterprise Resource Planning Software. It's a software that most companies use to it's manage like business. Oracle and uh, what else, who else makes uh, ERP? NetSuite and SAP and Sage and Enforce. Yep. Yeah, there's lots of them. I've always heard the hard part of the ERP is getting it installed, but once you have it, it's a nice thing to have. Although it's getting easier, right? I think my daughter installs that, I think, with Workday, and she says that's really easy to install. Yeah, I think that's Workday's, uh, their kind of gift to the market is making that easy. I don't necessarily think that they've gotten easier in aggregate as they now connect to more third parties than ever and can do more than they've ever done. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine and he told me he lived in the neighborhood and I, I said, how's that ERP implementation going? He goes, well, it's done. And he goes, I told my boss that I will quit or retire before I do it again. Yeah. Systems integration is a huge opportunity in the market for anyone that wants to tackle it. So getting back to it, you work with basically shippers who are connected to ERP systems. And what kind of freight do you move? We specialize in parcel and less than truckload. Okay, cool, cool. So quite the background for this conversation then. So when we were talking about this, I told you you'd have to explain APIs to us. So again, today's topic is the five APIs, the apocalypse. So let's talk a little bit about APIs. It keeps coming up on my podcast and I'm getting a better understanding of it, but I always say it is not something that comes easily to us laymen. So talk a little bit about what APIs do, Jeremy. Yeah, and I am also not the technical expert. You're better uh, than me. <laughs> so, but, so historically, a lot of companies in transportation and fulfillment have relied on EDI. An API is really a more modern version of data exchange, and it allows multi-directional exchange of data both ways. You can keep it online at all times. You don't have to wait or schedule a dump of data. And so most of the, the software that we use today, and almost all the software that's on our phones... Right, are powered by APIs of some sort. And so if I was to use Facebook, if it, I think Facebook's a good example for a lot of us. So if I was on Facebook, I could be on my laptop, and when I go to switch to my phone, and if I had the Facebook app downloaded, it would kind of instantly connect. So that instant connection is clearly not the old EDI where it sent a huge data dump and when waited for another message to send the data back, right? This is always open, kind of, and instant. Yeah, it's always keeping the data up to date wherever it's needed. And from what I understand, there's a little bit of code that Facebook would leave open on my phone, also probably on my laptop. I don't know if it's, if the API is necessarily on the app, but it's what connects all these systems and it allows it to happen fast. So good to know. So when we t- talked about the five APIs of the apocalypse, great title, by the way, Jeremy. So tell me, what are the five APIs? Yeah, the five APIs of the apocalypse are Amazon. Walmart, Alibaba, JD.com, and Shopify. When we, when we were prepping for this offline, I was like, wait, wait, those are stores except for Shopify, which helps stores. So why are you calling those APIs rather than like online retailers? Because the power of the retailers, I should say, in Walmart's case. Yeah, true. And, and they are marketplaces or retailers, the exception of Shopify, to large degrees. But the world that we are living in and the world that we are moving to is connected everywhere. And it is connected by these big companies, APIs. And you can think about it as in, do you have an Amazon app on your phone? Do you have an Alexa device or a Google Assistant device in your home 
or your office. They're connected into your laptop. They may even be connected into your refrigerator or your toaster, right? Or their smart device thermostat. <laughs> yeah, they're always listening. We've heard the horror stories. I say tell some of the fun ones in the book, but they're always listening. And the purpose is positioning the right products in front of you when they think you're going to buy and ubiquitous order placement. They want to be able to take orders places that nobody else can. So you're saying that you wouldn't be calling this an apocalypse if it was just these are online marketplaces. You're saying it's more than them being marketplaces. They're constantly connected to us. Yeah. I mean, small and mid-sized companies are what power society and feed families. And these small and mid-sized businesses cannot compete against companies of this size that are this connected, right? So if you're a retailer or a manufacturer or distributor, why should I be afraid of? I mean, I recognize the, the threat, but why don't we go over it? What is, how does Amazon threaten a retailer, manufacturer, distributor? And don't they work with Amazon? Some of them. Some of them work in large degrees. Some of them work to lesser degrees or more strategically, meaning maybe they put one line of products on the marketplace, but not their higher quality or higher margin items. But the reason they need to, I mean, there's so many, it's manifold, the reasons that they need to worry. Number one, let me give you an example. Amazon spends almost a quarter of a billion dollars on each new smart warehouse, right? Each new warehouse, it's fully automated or not fully, but almost fully automated with robotics and software and the like. Independent retailers can't spend that type of money. They can barely spend single digit millions, right? right. In addition, they own the entire supply chain. These companies, to a large degree, own everything from the manufacturing overseas to the boats, to the warehouses, to the trucks, to the storage facilities here, to the final mile delivery agent network, all the software that connects everything in between. Amazon has built its own supply chain that is a fully closed system that third parties can't access unless they're part of the marketplace. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is interesting. We were talking about this when we were prepping. If I look at, let's just say I wanted to buy a shirt and I go online, I like Amazon. <laughs> they're great. So I go online and I go, oh, I like these short sleeve, button down Oxford shirts. And I look and then right away pops up Amazon Essentials. And they're usually pretty inexpensive. And you were saying, Joe, they have all their competitors' sales information. They know their pricing. They know everything about them. And I was like, oh, that's kind of unique. So that'd be, that would be as if I went to my local clothes store and the retailer said, I know everything about these guys who we buy from. They don't. They just buy. They're just a supplier. They're not going to go in business against you. Yeah, they don't just know all the data on your product history and what you may want to buy. They know all your customers' information. Because remember, these are Amazon customers. They're not your customers if you sell on their marketplace. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's very clear. The Wall Street Journal did an article a little bit ago because Amazon used to say they didn't use that data in order to decide what products to white label or not. And the Wall Street Journal pushed an article that suggested that's not the case, that they actually do use that data to determine which products to knock off. My laptop that's in front of me here is on a stand, a little laptop stand made by a company called Rain Design. I tell the story of Rain Design and the difficulties they faced as they learned how Amazon and these other marketplaces really operate. There are countless reasons that these independent businesses need to be wary. Yeah, and so what's kind of interesting is you mentioned something about not doing business with Amazon. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's almost, and by the way, 
I'm not even against Amazon. You do use them. So I recognize their power has grown and their wealth has grown. But talk about how you almost can't avoid them. Yeah, there was a a fun piece. A journalist tried to not do business with Amazon and she found it impossible. And her, if I remember correctly, her final straw was that she couldn't even watch Netflix because Netflix is hosted on on AWS. Amazon's tentacles are in everything, right? It's not even just the supply chain they own. It's all the different business units they own, all the different private label companies they own, the different services, the different marketplaces. They are everywhere. So... Even if we don't know it, we're doing business with Amazon. So when we get back to this API, that API can be put onto a phone and obviously can be put onto tablets and laptops. Where else are they putting these APIs? Yeah, into any Alexa device, any device powered by Alexa. If your car is powered by Apple CarPlay from Siri or Google's product with the Google Assistant, into the electronics in your home, into your thermostats with Nest, into your refrigerator. I mean, anywhere they can connect, they are connecting. And they want to sell me. (laughs) And they want to sell you, yes. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, I've had a number of fulfillment companies on my podcast, and one of the things uh, that comes up all the time is if you're a retailer and you want to start selling online, you get a fulfillment company. And so a lot of retailers who say, I'm going to get online, they go to a marketplace like Walmart or, I mean, Amazon or Walmart. And I guess increasingly maybe Alibaba, right? But the challenge I have with that is, you know, if I, let's just say I've created something and I think it's great, you know, maybe it's a clothing line and I say, I want to go on and I want to put it onto Amazon and they've got the traffic clearly and it's easy to buy. People like me love to buy from Amazon. But the problem is it's a marketplace. So when I have my beautiful sweaters up there, it pops up and says, the marketplace pops up and says, don't buy Joe's beautiful sweaters. You can if you want, but here's some other stuff, including ours, <laughs> right? That's cheaper, maybe so they can compare. And again, that's why we go to marketplaces. But I guess my point is, it might not be the best place for me. So then I switch over and I say, I'm going to have my own branded website, better solution for me, because now I have all my stuff. But do I have Amazon traffic? Do I have Amazon fulfillment? No, now I got to hire fulfillment companies, lots of good ones out there I can recommend. But I still don't have the traffic. And guys like me, who are used to Amazon, don't always want to switch over and buy from a branded site. Correct. It is a daunting challenge from the eyeballs to the distribution. There are many success stories out there, though, of companies that have bridged that gap and are doing it incredibly successfully. Give us an example. I'll give you a couple examples. One is uh, a customer of ours at Shiphawk called Grove Collaborative. Grove started a very small company. They were an early Shiphawk adopter. I visited their office in San Francisco and it was just this cramped little corner with a few people in it. They just announced the funding round last week at over a billion dollar valuation. These guys compete head to head with Amazon. They sell home cleaning products that are green and natural. And they've expanded that. They're now into makeup and a bunch of different product lines. But they built an authentic business, right? They built a business that was there for a reason to distribute good quality products. They did it to a customer that cared about that. And they did it in a way that was built for e-commerce. For example, they built item packaging made for shipping not made for a shelf, which helped depress their shipping costs. They have uh, an initiative internally right now to be plastic-free by 2025. And these things really matter to today's buyers. So by being authentic and building the business for e-commerce, they really gave themselves a leg up and it's working really well. Another company did the exact same thing 
in a different way and has been very public with their ongoing dialogue with Amazon is a shoe company named Allbirds. Oh, uh, yeah. The CEO of Allbirds. Yeah, wrote My a, kids keep trying to make me wear Allbirds. <laughs> <laughs> well, the CEO wrote a, an email to Bezos because Amazon had knockoff Allbirds on the site. And they weren't calling them Allbirds. It wasn't pretending to be Allbirds. It was just a duplicate product, but that was not made with sustainable materials. And it was not as good for the environment or the individual. But it was far cheaper. It was a lot less expensive. And as we know, a lot of us these days don't go to Google or elsewhere. We go to Amazon to do our product search. And if you search Allbirds, lo and behold, what comes up? All these non-Allbirds shoes that Amazon is making. And so the CEO wrote a letter saying, hey, if you're going to knock us off, you're going to copy, no problem, but at least use the sustainable materials so we're both in this for the same goal. And they don't sell all birds on Amazon. They do it on purpose. And that company is also doing incredibly well. There's many cases of companies that are existing on their own and thriving, but they have to take specific steps in order to do that. Right. But, you know, I just think if I'm going online this Christmas season, so if I was to go up and buy some stuff on Amazon right now, you know, I'm looking at free shipping. I'm looking at uh, I can buy 10 different products that are very diverse products. No problem. I buy them all on Amazon versus going to 10 different websites. I don't want to go to 10 different websites. And again, that's kind of the challenge that anybody popping up. So that we need another we maybe need some other competition for Amazon that's still a marketplace. Yeah, I mean, Google tries to do that through ads, although not incredibly well. And we know that Google's facing some antitrust issues of their own in Washington right now. Secretly, I am hoping that Shopify moves more in that direction. I know that Toby has sweared to not become a marketplace, but they have... It's Toby. The CEO of Shopify. Uh, I'm not on the first name basis. Uh, Neither am I. (laughs) But they've got this new app, the Shop app, that you can actually find Shopify stores around you or any geo. But, I mean, they have the power to allow us to search across their network of independence. And I'm hoping they expose that to us as buyers in the future. Because Shopify is a very different end than the other members of the big five. Yep. So Shopify basically is maybe the competitive response. So that's something that, you know, retailers, manufacturers, distributors can start using if they don't want to have to work with Amazon. Yeah, I call I I actually go to the degree of calling Shopify the independent merchants only hope in the book. The white knight. <laughs> and they Shopify wants to empower the independents. They take pride in the independents remaining independent and building their own businesses, regardless of size. So talk a little bit about Walmart. I know there's walmart.com and what percent, how big is walmart.com in relation to Amazon? I know I heard before it was like 20% of the size for the online. Yeah, I don't have that number off the top of my head. Walmart.com is smaller, but remember that that is uh, secondary to Walmart's retail assets. There is a Walmart within 15 miles of 80% of the U.S. population. Right. And globally, I mean, they dwarf everybody. There was... Um, a stat I like to share. In 2019, Walmart was generating an average of $4 million an hour for the Walton family. Their size is staggering. It's not just them. I think everybody owns Walmart at this one minute. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's in every mutual fund. So I think the advantage Walmart has is obviously they're close. And I know those, we look at retail locations as retail locations, but when you think about it, they're also fulfillment centers. And that's how they're going to be treated more and more going forward, correct? 
Absolutely. There was news came out this last week that Sam's is now using robots in the in the stores and making them into micro-fulfillment centers. Target is doing it to great success. But we're going to see more and more of the distribution moving closer to the final mile. I mean, from that perspective, Walmart has more warehouses than Amazon will ever have. They just haven't right. historically used them that way. Right. They're going to be Amazon's challenge when it comes to Walmart is how do we get to same day, next day, Walmart will have less of a challenge getting there. But it seems as if Amazon has the head start in some of the transportation stuff. But that'll be interesting. You know, the, I know we're not talking about Target here, but I think it's amazing what Target has done in that they bought Shipped, I think, in 2017, 2018. And so with those personal shoppers, I read the other day that there's 200,000 personal shoppers who work for Shipped. And What's interesting about that is they just scratched the surface. So I, I have shipped, and actually I'm, I'm at my mom's house right now. My mom, who's in her 80s, she uses ship. She's like, this is great. She goes on her iPad and orders her groceries, and they show up. And you know we're in the COVID era, so they just drop them off on the porch. And I keep thinking shipped could easily, <laughs> easily get a few million people being personal shoppers. And I think there's going to be a destabilizing influence on that because, Jeremy, if you were in the position where you said, I got to go work in a factory or distribution center or a fulfillment center, but I'll make 15, 20 bucks an hour, you'd be like, no, thanks. I'll just deliver groceries. A lot more fun. Drive around in my car and listen to my music. Yeah, there's challenges there too because the expectations of how many deliveries are made to keep those jobs, keeps those people on their toes for sure. And I see those delivery agents as just as vital to the supply chain and the future of the supply chain as the people that are left in the warehouses, the ones that haven't been replaced by robots yet. Call them the hero class in the book, but it is grinding, difficult work that these people are doing. Oh, yeah. Very low wages. Well, it's interesting because I've been talking to, last week I talked to a few fulfillment centers and one out west saying, hey, our starting pays $20 an hour. But it is still very hard work. I'm in my 50s. I couldn't do that right now. <laughs> I'll go for a walk or hit the gym. I can't spend eight hours moving boxes. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, all day. Right. There's even some in some places, people have gone out and just started sleeping in their cars in the parking lot outside these Amazon DCs in between shifts. And they'll just go right back in and start again because they just right. they don't even have the energy to go home. Right. So I'm an automotive guy originally, and I spent a lot of time in automotive plants. And the work over time became much more automated. And there's not used to be 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you went in an automotive plant, when you came home, you were whipped. You had to take a shower because you were dirty and you're sweaty. There's a lot of people who go into plants today who aren't doing that kind of backbreaking work. And I think we're going to see more and more of that, you know, companies like Six River Systems, you know, developing jobs that don't require you to kill yourself to make a living. Yeah. There's a CEO of a, a robotics company, Eric Neves from Plus One Robotics, that has some amazing thoughts on this. And it's interesting you brought up the automotive sector because his view is that the reason that automation was adapted by the automotive sector was because of General Motors. And General Motors went to all their distributors and said, here are the standards you have to adhere to, right? You have to level up. And it really put the pressure on the market to automate. And that hasn't happened in distribution yet, right? You have got it's still new. Yep. kind of lording it over everyone else. And they kind of are hoarding not just their abilities, but also the resources, Right. Like independent small guys can't go get best in class system integrators to come set up robotics in their warehouses. Right. They're not as available. They're all well, you don't have the volume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So I spent a lot of time in Asia and in China and Thailand. And what was always interesting to me after, after working on product vehicle lines that sold hundreds of thousands of units, we were selling 50,000 units or 2,000 units here or there. And what you realize quickly is you don't have the investment dollars because you can't justify it. Mm-hmm. You're selling 50,000 units, you don't automate. And so, you know, I think in automotive, my experience was over time, you start to realize you automate because you can't have people doing backbreaking jobs. The morale goes down. There's all sorts of injuries. The same thing is going to come to fulfillment where you start to realize some jobs can't be done by a human for eight hours a day without causing injuries and quality problems, morale issues. Can't have it. So we are going to see that more and more. We're getting a little off track here. So I want to talk about a few of these. So we've talked a lot about Amazon. We talked a little bit about Walmart. I know they're not on the tip of everyone's tongue here in the States, but talk about Alibaba and JD.com. Yeah, so they are like the Amazon and Walmart of China, and they're not just of China. They are global players. They both operate in the U.S. Google and Walmart are both investors in JD, but they are doing the same thing in another part of the world. And the future here and in most places has us interacting with them as well, right? They're not foreign to us. They will be a part of our lives. And for many of us, they already are. We just don't know the names that they're operating under. Interesting. So who owns Alibaba? I know I so remember that Jack, was it Jack Ma? Yeah, he was the CEO. He's he, was the, he was the founder. Is he out of it today? I don't know if he's truly out of it, but he has stepped off the board as of I don't, this, this year or last year. Yeah. So Alibaba, I know a lot of people buy here, like buy stuff from Alibaba and then sell it on eBay. Yeah, they do. <laughs> that is a, a method of starting a business. Yep, yep. So switching gears here. So we've talked about Amazon, Alibaba, Walmart, JD.com. And even though Shopify is in this five APIs, the apocalypse, and really it's an apocalypse if you're a retailer, manufacturer, distributor. Shopify really falls in that category, as you said, kind of the white knight. They can help keep these independent companies competing at a high level with these <laughs> these uh, big companies. So talk a little bit about what a retailer can do going forward to compete. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I would suggest everyone doing is visiting my website at jeremybodenhammer.com and taking the shipping strategy assessment that's there. There are ways that companies can compete from the eyeball kind of marketplace side, meaning how to get more people to the site, how to sell more. And then there are the ways from a distribution perspective. And the book is really about the distribution perspective, although we touch a little bit on the marketplace side. And so That shipping strategy assessment will really give them a good understanding of where the opportunities lie in their current distribution process. In addition, on the website, I have listed a partners tab where they can find partners to work with. One of the biggest needs that my sales team sees with customers and prospects that reach out to us is for the help with solutioning. Like they may know they need a warehouse management system and inventory management, but they don't know who to work with and they don't know why they should work with one provider over another. Another element in the book I talk about from a competitive perspective isn't just the authenticity of the business itself externally, but also internally. And investing in the team and the the, the distribution employees, like most of us do with our front office workers, right? We see these best work environment awards, but rarely are we really doing that type of investment in the warehouse itself. And there are a lot of efficiencies and opportunities to be gained from investing in those workers. Yep. I got to say, Jeremy, you brought up sustainability earlier. And I think that we as consumers have the ability to buy from companies that are doing the right thing for the people that work with them and the, the world at large, and also who are, are trying to limit their environmental impact. That has become 
almost constant discussion on my podcast. I started to realize, and I don't want to be political, but I think we see certain elements in this country who are saying we need to get rid of capitalism, we need to adopt more of a socialist model or even worse. And I think really capitalism and free trade has been a really a force for good. But I think we could tweak it to say, look, we're going to make sure we take care of people who are underserved by this economy. And also we're going to make sure we don't have a negative environmental impact. I think that's the way we take business back and say, hey, this is a force for good and be able to mean it. <laughs> so, and when we say force for good, it's always hard when somebody says, well, look how wealthy Jeff Bezos is. Yeah, he made a lot of money, but he's done a lot of good things too. Yeah, I completely agree with the need for ethical capitalism, right? Us taking our power and doing the right thing with it. As that relates to the warehouse itself and decisions that business owners can make, right? Because sometimes that feels so far away, like it's not possible because we don't have that power. Let me just give you one stat. Uh, box maker pack size publishes this research and it's fascinating. The average box shipped out of the average warehouse is 40% bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> Yikes. Now that's so true. This time again, it's December of uh, 2020 and you know, all the Christmas stuff is starting to come. You open up a box and it's crazy. I was at my buddy's house the other day watching football. He got three big boxes and they're from Costco. And it was like, <laughs> it wasn't fragile stuff, but there was so much air shipped. I was yeah. like, dude, what is this? It looked we like you got like four TVs in here. Yep. And we don't think about the actual impact of that. To us, it's just, oh, look, this is a big box. But the impact on an annual basis in the U.S. is that we are shipping 60 million truckloads of air. Wow. And so we have the control in our own warehouse to impact things as simple as using the boxes that are the right size. Yep. You said something I think is interesting is this product maker who says, hey, we're building our product so it can be shipped easily. And that makes a lot of sense because when I think about my days back in automotive, if we had a piece of metal that we were making stamped parts out of, we would try and minimize scrap to reduce costs. But obviously, mm -hmm. if you can reduce scrap, that means you're also reducing the amount of scrap that goes to a recycler to be remanufacturing it. And same thing. So if you could get to the point where you say, hey, this fits perfectly in the size palette, and that's why we ship it this way. Yes. And the software and hardware is out there to support those use cases. Excellent. Excellent. So, Jeremy, we've covered the five APIs of the apocalypse. You explained <laughs> APIs to us a little bit. I'm going to continue to need these uh, primers. And yet, I think we talked about Shopify being kind of the opportunity for retailers, manufacturers, distributors to kind of compete. So why don't you summarize this a little bit and give us final thoughts on this topic? Yeah, final thoughts are that the giants can feel large, and they are. They're bigger than companies we've ever seen, but that there are tools that the independents can use to thrive, and they can still grow big, successful businesses that they can be proud of that make their communities healthier and you know feed families and do the things that, that they started the business to do. So we talk about that in the book. And my big advice is in their quest against fighting these giants to make sure to just be themselves. Authenticity has never been more important in the marketplace. And they got to tell their customers that they're being authentic. They can't just expect people to see it. They got to broadcast it from the mountaintops. Right, right. So, so Jeremy, before you go, tell us a little bit what's going on with Ship Hawk and also talk about your book and, so, and how we can go about getting that. 
Yeah. So at Shiphawk, Shiphawk is a the premier packing and shipping software for ERP connected companies. So if you have an ERP and you're shipping any sort of volume at all and you need multi-carrier rating with parcel and less than truckload or optimization across multiple warehouses or storefronts, packing optimization, uh, dynamic rating rules, customized reporting, shipping documentation, all these type of things, my team is available to help. And even if you don't know what you need, my team is available to help. So who do you normally work with? We work with traditionally mid-market companies that we define as those that are shipping more than 4,000 orders a month. It's usually our floor is around minimum 4,000 orders a month. Okay. So you can find them at shiphawk.com. That's like the boat and the bird, S-H-I-P-H-A-W-K. And then on the book front, you can find the book on Amazon or any of your major uh, book resellers. Unfortunately, there aren't many left other than Amazon. So Amazon's there for you. It's got paperback, hardback, and a Kindle version. Excellent, excellent. What I'll do, Jeremy, is I'll put a link to your book. And what's the name of the book again? Adapt or Die. Excellent. Is there a subtitle on that? There is. Your Survival Guide to Modern Warehouse Automation. Excellent. I'll put a link to Adapt or Die. I'll also put a link to Ship Hawk, and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can bug you there. Jeremy, this is really Interesting. I mean, this is eye-opening. I'm amazed at how quickly things have changed in our business. And, you know, when I say our business, when I think of our business, I think of transportation, warehousing, and I never really, transportation, warehousing, logistics, I think of the technology. I never really thought we'd be talking a lot about fulfillment or this final mile or APIs. I mean, it just, this seemed to just pop in in the last few years and it, it was kind of below the surface and now it is here. And the biggest part of our business seems to be final mile from retailers to consumers. It really has blown up. It has. It's more important than ever. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and up. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 